Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and joining us today on the other side of the mic on the fifth leg of his multi-leg media tour, Mr. Michael Sonnenschein, CEO of Grayscale Investments. Today we're going to be discussing, I mean, they've been making headlines, right, with this lawsuit against the Securities and Exchange Commission to convert its flagship fund, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, into a spot ETF. But before we get into all of that, we have to take a moment to thank our sponsors. What's next for digital currency after a brutal 2022? While the core promise of crypto hasn't changed, digital currency is still forming the base layer for a new global commerce infrastructure. From merchants at the point of sale to corporations that want to pay suppliers and even employees more efficiently. Circle has always seen itself as a connector of the traditional world and the new world of digital currency. It's like building houses. What's the foundation and can you get the foundation right? Throughout Q1, I'm happy to host leaders from Circle here on The Scoop to give listeners the chance to hear how one of crypto's most prominent builders is paving the way for digital currency utility. Visit circle.com scoop for more information. Have you ever wanted to use DeFi without being seen? Railgun is a leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum. It's also a leading privacy solution operating across Binance Smart Chain, Arbitrum, and Polygon 2. And yes, that includes DEX trading. DeFi and privacy together at last. Visit railgun.org to find out more. This episode is also brought to you by Flare, an EVM-based layer one blockchain with secure, decentralized access to information from other chains and the internet. Flare's native interoperability protocols provide developers with a variety of high-integrity price and event data, including detailed transaction proofs from other chains and information from Web2 APIs. Build better and connect everything at flare.network. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblock.co slash terms dash service. I want to thank our guest, Michael Sonnenschein, for coming on the show, sir. You flagged me down in St. Moritz. You, uh, you know, you scolded me for not hitting you up in a long time. Um, I felt guilty. It's been a minute, Frank. It's good to be back and good to be chatting with you. You know, to be honest, I'm just happy that, like, you know, someone from the early days is is still out there running around. Um, it's been it's been weird the past few months for for me because so many players have either gone wiped out or just gone real quiet, right? Because, sure. you know, you're, you're, this is kind of a meme, but it does happen during these bear cycles where you, you, you do kind of get heads down and, and don't really talk too much to press or don't have that many new product announcements or the, the data is not that good. So there's no reason to, uh, you know, chat about it ad nauseum, but you guys are in the thick of this really, I think important battle. Thank you. Yeah, that's spot on. I mean, I am now in my, I've been crypto for nine years. Uh, so this is my third crypto winter. This is Grayscale's third crypto winter. Um, and, and it's not a time, to your point, to, um, you know, shy away from, 
you know, whether it's tough questions or, you know, people that are, you know, facing uncertainty in the crypto space or, you know, who are unfortunately having to, you know, shut down their businesses or pivot to other things. Um, I'm actually seeing a lot of good activity within the crypto space um, throughout this crypto winter. And, you know, we can certainly talk about it today. But uh, to your point, you know, it's, uh, it's nice to chat. Listen, a meteor could strike Stanford and you'd still be bullish about crypto. <laughs> I have never wavered. I have never wavered. That is true. So the one thing that's striking to me about this entire thing is that this isn't, I mean, the, the team, this is like a powerhouse roster of attorneys that you have. And it, it only takes about 20 seconds of research to see that you brought, you have some of the high, you know, former folks from highest levels of, of government, and they're not going to bring a frivolous case to the court. Um, to level set a bit, I think if you asked anyone what they expected out of yesterday, um, everyone except for maybe you would say that Grayscale performed better than expected and that they really made a strong case against um, the SEC. Maybe for folks who aren't as plugged into this, we can start with yesterday and, and how you think it sure. went, but then also lay out the story, how we even got to this point. Yeah. So let, let's talk about all of that. I mean, to start, um, you're, you're spot on. Um, and that's that's not a pun, no pun intended when we're talking about a spot Bitcoin ETF, but you are spot on. Um, we do have a powerhouse legal team. Craig Salm, our chief legal officer. Uh, we hired Don Verrilli um, from MTO. He's the former solicitor general of the United States under Obama. Um, and of course, our attorneys at Davis Polk that have, um, you know, been counsel to Grayscale for many years. And so, um, you know, we're confident we have the best legal minds possible surrounding this. Um, when I think about the oral arguments this week, they um, they really left us feeling encouraged um, when we when we walked out of the courtroom. Um, I have to say, I think we're certainly appreciative of the opportunity um, to be able to have this case tried. Um, in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals um, and to be able to advocate for our investors. But I think yesterday um, was just yet another example of consistency, right? The arguments that were presented in, in court are the arguments we've been presenting, right? That's the arguments that were laid out in our initial ETF application, which the SEC unfortunately rejected. It's the same arguments that were, you know, in our opening briefs um, and subsequent briefs that were filed when when we unfortunately had to make the decision to sue the SEC. And those are the same arguments we made in court. And um, I think many, to your point, would say that they resonated um, with the judges. And we remain hopeful that those arguments will persuade the judges to uh, rule in Grayscale's favor. One, one salient point was when Verrilli effectively called out or accused the SEC of misrepresenting the Tukram approval letter, which I think is key to your case, right, in which they approved um, a a a spot based product, a futures based product, futures based product. That's right, under the Thirty Three Act, which they effectively are denying you the same similar type of approval. There, I mean, there's two aspects here, right? Because I mean, from my perspective. I know there's the difference between the 33 and the 40, but in terms of the manipulation aspect of the spot versus future, that's another thing that doesn't, I mean, they seem like to like to me, but sure. just looking at this, the um, if we were to walk through in the way in which the grayscale argument hinges on this two approval 
Can you explain that to the listener? Yeah, of course. I think for a long time, the SEC maintained a stance of no Bitcoin ETF products you know, approved to come to market. Um, and at that point, while that was obviously a frustrating stance for them to take, it was at, you know, at least at a minimum fair um, in the sense that there was no imbalance in the types of products coming to market. That changed when they approved the first Bitcoin futures based ETF and they initially were approving them under the 40 Act. Right. This is legislation that underpins many, many, many ETFs out there. And the SEC actually went as far as to say that there was some added protections within the 40 Act products and the way that they have to be registered and function that gave them added comfort with it, which was, again, an interesting comment for them to make. And then that thinking kind of evolved further when, to your point, Frank, they approved the Tucrium product under the 33 Act, which yeah. you know, is also a very you know battle-tested product wrapper for countless you know ETF products here in the U.S. And so the argument of the 40 Act additional protections no longer stood up. And so I think when you look at this and you think about the arguments we've presented, the Bitcoin futures is you know, is a derivative of the spot market, period, end of story. By definition, that's what a Bitcoin futures contract is. And all of the empirical data says that there is a 99.9% correlation between the Bitcoin futures market and the Bitcoin spot market. And so inherently, if the SEC got comfortable enough with Bitcoin futures contracts to approve a Bitcoin futures ETF, well, they at the same time had to have also gotten comfortable with that underlying spot market. And that's really the argument that our, you know, our attorneys have articulated and has really created an unfair playing field for investors. And, you know, now we're having to sue the SEC to, you know, challenge that decision. Do you think um, this might be an unfair question just because upgrading GBTC to an ETF solves a lot of the market structure problems that, you know, we've talked about for a long time. But do you think there's the underpinning uh, desire by Chair Gensler and, and the agency right now is to keep this crypto craziness from spilling into broader capital markets because of how much carnage um, we've seen specifically tied to GBTC, right? You know, if you if you look at sort of that first big domino or maybe some of the bigger dominoes, you have Luna and then Three Arrows and BlockFi um, doing the ARB with GBTC. Do you, do you give any credence to this potential uh, idea that they might have that they're trying to protect uh, regular investors from all of, all of that craziness? You know, Frank, I appreciate the question because it speaks to my understanding directly to what the SEC's mandate is, which is protecting investors. So when you think about a product like GBTC, it's been in existence for nine plus years. It's been publicly quoted in the US since the middle of 2015. And it's been registered as an SEC reporting company since January of 2020. And so when I think about that history, the history of engagement we've had, we have just continued to voluntarily bring the ability for investors to get Bitcoin exposure closer and closer into the regulatory perimeter. And so I would say to directly answer your question, I don't know what the chair or what the SEC may be thinking here, 
But what I can say is that you will be hard pressed to find asset managers um, or anyone for that matter that's involved in our capital markets who's asking the regulator the way we are for greater regulation, greater oversight, and ultimately greater investor protections. So whether or not the SEC's decision is overturned, I think it's important to remember that GBTC will continue to exist. Um, if it's you know not eventually converted to an ETF, it will continue to be out there and investable and tradable by all types of investors. Um, and at the same time, if GBTC does convert to an ETF, which we're confident it will, it's a matter of, of when, not a matter of if, um, well, then that would be actually the regulator taking the opportunity to further protect investors and, and do right by them. So how do you think this will proceed? Obviously, Mr. Gensler, Chair Gensler is not going to back down um, and he hasn't given any indication that he will. So they send this back to the SEC. Um, they'll likely appeal. Will they? I, I don't know. Um, is that is that your conjecture? I don't know. I'm just asking if you think they would. <laughs> it's tough to say. I mean, I think that, um, you know, having a, a court order um, that comes out of the D.C. circuit, uh, you know, that would, you know, let's say, tell the SEC that they could no longer deny, you know, Grayscale's conversion of GBCC to an ETF based on the grounds that have been laid out, I think would put, um, you know, some some pretty strong arguments um, in favor of the SEC, you know, changing its course on how it feels about GBTC's application. And, you know, we, of course, have always had a, you know, open and productive dialogue with them. And even throughout, you know, the lawsuit, I would say um, it's, you know, it's still a professional relationship. It's not, you know, something contentious. So we would, of course, work with them um, regardless of the outcome here. I mean, if you look back, probably from their perspective, approving the futures-based ETFs were a big mistake, at least as it pertains to this specific case. Well, I wouldn't say it's a mistake because I think, you know, capital formation, um, investor protection, fair and orderly markets, these are all part of the SEC's mandate. And so as the ability for investors to get exposure to these assets has grown in demand, um, you know, they should be bringing these products into the market, keeping in mind the SEC is, of course, a disclosure regulator, not a merit regulator. So they should not be deciding what is and isn't appropriate for investors, rather just ensuring that all the risks are properly disclosed so folks are making informed investing decisions. I think, you know, when I've been in D.C., you know, over the last couple of weeks and couple of months, um, there's certainly a narrative that a lot of the carnage, you know, to use your word, that has ensued may actually have been avoided um, over the last couple of months had more regulated options been made available to investors. Things like a Bitcoin ETF and investors wouldn't have sought, you know, offshore exchanges and unregulated businesses um, to get crypto exposure. Mm. I think some of them would still have been out there, though. The appeal of degeneracy knows no bounds. Well, I would say that, um, you know, again, going back to the fact that this is the third crypto winter I've been a part of, I've seen, you know, businesses that were once, you know, foundational, almost unthinkable that the crypto ecosystem could survive without them, 
um, and they've been pulled out of the ecosystem for one reason or another. And crypto has gone on to continue to build and thrive and grow, right? You remember, were you around for Mt. Gox? No. No, you weren't around for Mt. Gox. I was, I'm a 2016 entrant. Okay, okay. Which is like a weird class of people. There's not too many of us. It's like typically 2014, 2017, 2020. <laughs> But yeah, the, you know, the, you know, Mount Gox, whether it was, you know, concentration of, you know, mining uh, in places like China that eventually got banned. And well, then everyone thought, well, where is it all going to go? And look where it went, it, you know, dispersed and went all over the world. And, you know, now it was, you know, perhaps unthinkable that FTX um, would no longer be part of the crypto ecosystem. And now it's not. And, you know, those volumes have now gone to other exchanges and other places. So um, I think that's that speaks to to you know the health of, of crypto as a whole. So when do you expect a decision by the federal appeals court? We've been advised by counsel um, that these are not overnight decisions, um, but rather we should expect a decision, you know, hopefully by the fall of 2023. So a couple months away. And then you'll sort of will will you reapply for the listing? What does that process look like? Uh, we, you know, we don't know the exact process um, of what it's going to look like because it depends on what the not only what the ruling is for us or against us, um, but also the substance of the ruling as well. Um, but again, regardless, we're of course going to work proactively with the SEC, um, whatever the outcome is. So they overturn it. Q three could be potentially a twenty twenty four listing. Um, I don't know. Um, I mean, let's let's, you know, let's hypothetically play it out that the SEC um, decision is overturned um, and we go to the SEC and we talk to them and say, this is what the court said. Let's work productively together and let's figure out how to uplist this to the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, we're ready um, as a business, as a team. The service providers surrounding the product are ready and have been anticipating this. So, um, you know, we're um just eager for that green light and um, to uplift to the New York Stock Exchange. Vildana just messaged me. She said, what message did Sun and Shine and Co. relate to you just now? <laughs> of course, I was doing nothing but sending, you know, kind regards. Same, same. We're big fans of Vildana here at The Scoop. Small world. Um, and, and her show. Great show. Okay, so let's, let me ask you something. Um Full disclosure, I feel like I need to give the disclosure out that a unfortunately large portion of my of my retirement of my 401k is in GBTC. Okay. I'm effectively a whale at this point. I'd love to hear that, a proud GBTC investor. I didn't say I was proud of it. I mean, if you look at this discount to NAV, I'm, I'm just... I'm just waiting. <laughs> this is where my bias might be creeping through. We we need this ETF because one day I'm going to open up Fidelity and it's going to be like up 40%. Um, be that as it may, one thing that people talk about, right, is why can't you open up um, redemptions and that'll fix the problem. And I, I think there's arguments on both sides. I feel like the situation is such that if you were to do that under Reg M, which is something people ask me to ask you about, wouldn't that mean that if you operate redemptions, then you wouldn't be allowed to operate the subscription model, which would then just give you the inverse of the problem now in terms of going from having the, the discount to a premium? Just to be more to the point, 
what what some proponents would say, I don't even know if you'd call them proponents, but just people that want you to open up redemptions, they would say that they're possible, you guys just refuse. Sure. So I would say that REGM um, is something that is granted relief from in the context of ETFs. So when an ETF comes to market, there's various filings that are being made. And as we all know, the ETF structure, which is, you know, at this time, a battle-tested structure that has you know, thousands of ETFs here in the U.S., one of the things that they're granted from the SEC is relief from REGM. And what REGM relief allows them to do is both create and redeem shares of the ETF simultaneously. And it is that embedded mechanism that allows market participants to create more shares or redeem and destroy shares such that it helps to keep the share price trading in line with the underlying assets that it owns. So in contrast to what some folks may say about REGM, this is not something that can just be you know, taken on in a vacuum um, or, or been given relief from in, in a vacuum, right? This is something in the context of ETFs. I guess separate and distinct from that is this idea of tender offers, right? And so a product like Grayscale Bitcoin Trust today, which is not yet an ETF, um, would be able to facilitate redemptions through a tender offer if it was given the appropriate approvals by both investors, as well as relief from the tender offer rules by the SEC. And so what I've said and what we've said as an organization is that we are focused on the conversion to an ETF Converting to an ETF would be getting REGM relief. So we'd have creations and redemptions simultaneously. Arbitrage mechanism would keep GBTC inherently tracking the underlying Bitcoin it holds, no longer premiums and discounts. But if we were to reach an impasse and have exhausted all of our legal and judicial options on the path to an ETF, we would then consider doing a tender offer. And, you know, that I think is a really important distinction between the two. And again, why some people, you know, think that this is just something that can be done in a vacuum on its own. Understood. Was my sort of an analysis, for lack of a better word, correct, that if you were to, let's say you got the REGM exemption, then you would, it would, it would sort of just create an inverse of the situation now, because I believe you wouldn't be able to do subscriptions as well as redemptions? Well, again, reg relief from REGM is something that's offered in the context um, of an ETF, right? So um, being able to simultaneously create and redeem is critical. It's, it's the crux of how an ETF functions. Um, a tender offer would be uh, a ability to redeem shares or buy back shares um, separate and distinct from or prior to uh, being in an ETF format. Totally different. The core promise of crypto hasn't changed. Stable coins can bring faster payments at internet scale. From merchants at the point of sale to corporations that want to pay suppliers or even employees more efficiently. Circle has always seen itself as a connector of the traditional world and the new world of digital currency. USDC is more than just a stable coin. USDC is also an open source platform. When our transactions are actually final and you can't change them anymore, that's another great quality property of cash because when it switches hand, it's fine. 
vinyl, right? Can you digitize all those good quality properties and bring that in a digital form? USDC by Circle is at the forefront of this innovation. And that's why The Scoop is partnering with the folks at Circle to tell you guys why and how our industry is moving. A lot of us who have built USDC, myself included and Jeremy included, we are technologists. So we approach this problem from a technology point of view. Visit circle.com slash scoop for more information. Have you ever wanted to use DeFi without being seen? Railgun is a leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum. And it's also a leading privacy solution operating across Binance Smart Chain, Arbitrum, and Polygon too. Shield your funds and use them privately on your favorite DeFi apps. Railgun's cutting edge zero knowledge system encrypts your data from public view. And yes, that includes DEX trading. DeFi and privacy together at last. Visit railgun.org to find out more. This episode is also brought to you by Flare, an EVM-based layer one blockchain with secure access to information from other chains and the internet. Flare's state connector acquires detailed transaction data from blockchains and information from Web2 APIs in a decentralized way, so it can be used securely, scalably, and trustlessly in applications running on the network. Paired with the Flare Time Series Oracle for decentralized price and time series data, Flare delivers a developer focused blockchain with secure native access to more off-chain data than ever before. Build better and connect everything at flare.network. Maybe we can think about the firm from a business perspective. This gets approved. I mean, that's a huge unlock for the company. How does that sort of change your, your destiny as it were? What, what are the ambitions for the firm as an asset manager what can you do next once you've you reach that next stage well i don't I, I like the fact that you said how does it change our destiny um it actually i think fulfills or actually you know checks off something that we've been working you know fervently on since day one which is a bitcoin etf right when we structured gbtc all the way back in 2013 we actually chose a legal entity, a legal structure, a grantor trust structure purposely because we always knew it would eventually be in the public market. And we always knew that we wanted it to convert to an ETF. So in many ways, um, you know, we would view that milestone as a massive win for our investors, a massive win for Grayscale, and quite frankly, a massive win, not just for the crypto community, um, but probably the investment management industry as a whole, right? The ability to, you know, get Bitcoin exposure through an ETF wrapper. I mean, that would be that would be huge. Um, I do think, you know, when when I take a big step back and I look at the totality of the Grayscale family of products, we've gone on to launch, you know, well over a dozen other digital asset products, whether they are a single asset, just holding Ethereum or Litecoin or Bitcoin Cash or diversified funds that, you know, have exposure to certain subsets of the crypto market, be it, you know, smart contracts or DeFi, you know, we want to continue to progress all of those products um, along this four phase life cycle, ultimately um, having all of them become ETFs. Um, and I do believe it's only a matter of time before this product family um, is all you know, converted to ETFs. That'll bring down the fees, would it? Would it? Certainly. 
Um, you know, I've said it, you know, multiple times. I'll say it again to you, Frank. Um, what if we lowered them just a little bit? Like, you know, just <laughs> come on, ten, for each month that you don't get this ETF approved, one-tenth of a basis point. I've committed, we will lower the fee on GBTC when it converts into an ETF. I think that it is a fee that has been consistent throughout time. Um, it's always, you know, remained the yeah, same. It's consistently it's, high. Well, it's been consistently disclosed to, to investors, right? If some investors find other alternatives that are less expensive, more expensive, I mean, you know, keep in mind, there's a variety of ways to get crypto exposure. And, you know, this fund was well before its time launching all the way back in 2013. Um, but uh, yes, to your point, we, we will certainly be reducing fees in an ETF state. And then how do you balance that out? There's more, you have more sort of channels of, of reach for the product once it's an ETF. Well, I would say, Frank, despite the popularity that GBTC has, and, and I think, um, you know, as just to your point, right, even someone like you who wants Bitcoin exposure in their retirement account, you know, you're going to have a hard time finding the ability to buy Bitcoin in your retirement account. Well, I'm just long. waiting for Fidelity to, to do it. It's been, <laughs> But you can buy GBTC. So. I can. But Fidelity keeps saying that they're going to let me buy Bitcoin through my self-directed 401k, and it's like... Taking time. Taking time. Um, and so I think the ability to do so through an ETF does open the opportunity to a bigger base of investors. I mean, we've done a lot of research on this, and I think it doesn't matter whether you're an individual investor, um, an investor that has a financial advisor, or you're an institution, there is a substantial size um, within the investment management industry that wants Bitcoin exposure, but is actually, you know, despite your 2016 entrance, Frank, and all the people you've probably convinced to get into crypto, there's still people on the sidelines who are waiting for Bitcoin exposure through an ETF. Um, so I'm confident that an ETF and GBTC's conversion will draw in more capital and, and bring the opportunity to more people. Yeah, my godmother bought shares of Coinbase when it went public because I was in crypto and now she doesn't talk to me. <laughs> We called up her broker. She's a, you know, that's how old school, you know. Wow. I wasn't there for that conversation, but, um, you know, there's limited ways to get exposure to this asset class. It's a new asset class. It's an emerging asset class. And, you know, that does come with it, its risks. So it's not necessarily appropriate for everybody. Yeah, understood. So what's it like sort of, you know, having to, uh, you know, now hold the entire DCG family upon your shoulders as the crown jewel? Is that a lot of pressure? I would say that it has been nothing short of empowering um, for me as a CEO to be, you know, at the helm of a, I think, a very entrepreneurial business um, that has been pioneering access to this asset class, what I was just just talking about. Um, you know, I think as a team, we've overcome a lot of challenges that have been thrown at us in, as an organization and our industry as a whole. So it's, you know, regulatory hurdles, commercial hurdles, um, but ultimately have never really gotten distracted by um, headlines or what's been going on in the crypto industry, the carnage, you know, to, to, to use your term from earlier. Um, and I think the same goes for, you know, other companies that were under common ownership of um, who have, you know, too tried to weather this crypto winter uh, as best they can. 
Yeah, it's interesting. And what does it look like from a client perspective? Like, has that carnage translated into flows declining? What what do flows look like? Well, I, I think it's less. Um, you know, flows. I think are less of of a indicator here. I think it's actually more um, thinking through what sentiment and feedback looks like. I think many folks think that in the wake of recent events in crypto, that investors are you know, fleeing and that investors are um, not keen to continue to follow crypto. But I think most investors we're engaging with um, are certainly seeing the staying power of the asset class through this, right? I think, you know, we're in a weird investment environment in general, whether it's, you know, rising rates or the threat of a looming recession. Um, And I think we're starting to see crypto decouple from other things um, that has maybe been a little bit more tied to historically. And I think most investors are still in it for the long haul, Frank, um, and not, you know, again, getting getting distracted by by near-term dislocations or, you know, events that are, are kind of one-offs. How do you measure sentiment? Well, I would say one way you don't measure sentiment is just on prices. And that's not just a grayscale thing. I think that's an industry-wide thing, right? I think a lot of people say, you know, crypto is healthy because Bitcoin's back at 60K or, you know, Bitcoin or crypto is unhealthy because it's down or range bound. That's actually not the way you really think about it. I think for us, we really look at developer activity. We look at, you know, integrations. We look at um, transactional volumes taking place on various networks. I mean, that's really what's so exciting about being in the space. There's just such a wealth of information available to you to really think about how um, crypto is being adopted and and used. Um, And I think that the crypto ecosystem is going to emerge from this crypto winter um, stronger than ever. It's tricky, though. Like, you know, uh, I appreciate you saying that you, you try to remain very focused, but when you're going through a broader, you know, market downturn that involves a lot of the pieces of your parent company. Um, How do you maintain that focus? Like from almost like a management perspective where, you know, there were a lot of reports, I think rumors for sure of different types of deals where maybe, you know, the parent raises or certain equity sold or whatever have you, you probably can't share any specifics, but from a CEO management perspective, how do you kind of navigate that uncertainty whilst also operating a business? Because I think it's something that a lot of people in this space are going through right now, to be like totally honest. Sure. Like you're, you're navigating, you've got the actual business, and then you have to worry about potentially raising or, or other things that are outside of your control. Sure. Well, I think it's important to just take a step back and remind ourselves that, you know, despite being under common ownership, that the various businesses underpinning Digital Currency Group, including Grayscale, are each distinct businesses, right? They each have their own leadership teams, their own budgets, their own governance, um, you know, their own ways that they're registered. And, you know, all of that is true, certainly at Grayscale. So, um, you know, I'm certainly not going to speculate or give airtime to you know, rumors or other, you know, kind of conjectures that folks have have made about us. But I'd say that navigating this has really all been about the team that I have in place. Um, you know, we talked about Craig Salm, our chief legal officer before. 
um, and the rest of the leadership team all the way down to analysts at Grayscale. Um, we've just put together a phenomenal team and um, everybody continues to be really, really focused on our ETF conversion and really figuring out the best ways to continue to scale the business amidst crypto winter, right? So that's infrastructure, um, that's redundancies, you know, that's constantly, you know, thinking through, are we using the best service providers? Those are really the types of things that, you know, we can do to continue to give even more staying power to Grayscale and, and you know, not getting distracted. Outside the ETF, where are you, you know, focusing your efforts? Yeah, you know, I've been CEO for the past two years, and I think some of the things we've been working on have been fortifying some of those foundational elements that I think give Grayscale even more autonomy as an organization. So, you know, creating our own broker-dealer, our own RIA, um, we began to build out our ETF franchise with our first, you know, equity-based ETF. We launched um, a USITS compliant ETF in Europe. I think for us, we're continuing to expand our product suite, um, our team, and, you know, really ensuring that we are, um, you know, continuing to build out capabilities, not just to kind of satisfy investor demand, but kind of anticipating where investor demand is is coming from and is going to be coming from. So what else? What else are you excited about outside of um, ETFs and asset management and Grayscale? Well, I think I have an interesting and, and relatively unique perspective, right? You're a 2016 vintage. I'm a very early 2014 vintage. And so what's so fun, actually, from, from the seat that I have looking at the last nine years of this industry is there are things that have now become common everyday, you know, colloquial words or use cases for crypto that were never even kind of conceived of. And then now that they've been brought about and something that everyone talks about, um, they've kind of become the norm, right? So in 2014 and 15 and 16, we weren't talking about NFTs or we weren't talking about the metaverse or um, we weren't necessarily talking about things like decentralized finance. And so like sitting here in early 2023, I'm excited. I'm excited that there's going to be other things that, you know, continue to get built within crypto that um, are not just solutions in search of problems, but rather are, you know, real applications that can, you know, save people money, that can create efficiencies, that, you know, can create trust where there isn't, that can cause us to not rely on centralized intermediaries. Um, I think that's what's so exciting about where, where crypto is headed. Um, and actually, I think from one of the other things I shared, which is, spending a fair amount of time in DC, I think, you know, 2023 is a year where we're going to see the passing of crypto focused, you know, regulation here in the US. I think it's gonna have massive impact on crypto, um, not just in the US, but actually I think abroad as well. I think there's many regulators around the world and policymakers around the world that are looking to the US um, to see how the US is going to, to handle crypto. and. Um, it's a real opportunity for us as a country because it really starts to touch on, you know, American competitiveness. Should businesses leave the U.S. and go elsewhere? Um, these are fundamental questions that need answering. And um, I think I'm, I'm confident um, that we as a, a country and, you know, spending time with the appropriate folks can ensure that, you know, crypto policy and crypto regulation ensures crypto success here in the U.S. 
since 2014, we've seen myriad of shifts in what we think of Bitcoin being Mm -hmm. these different narratives, right? Um, You know, you guys were, were famous for the gold campaign. Um, and then everyone in the space talked about how Bitcoin was this inflation hedge. And now it just seems very correlated to the broader market. As those narratives change, do clients sort of get frustrated or do you see different clients coming in? Like, did we get rugged on the uh, inflation hedge narrative? I don't think so. I think the narrative that, that Bitcoin is digital gold is a narrative that is here to stay. Um, I don't know that we necessarily talk about it as much as there's other use cases being unlocked on top of things like Bitcoin, like ordinals and, and others. But I would say that as time goes on to the point I was making, more use cases, um, more applications are getting unlocked. And so I think that that then allows more individuals, more groups to find what is going to resonate with them about having Bitcoin exposure or owning Bitcoin. I think that's what's so exciting about it. It actually can mean different things or serve in different ways for different people. Understood. Well, Michael, thanks for taking the time to stop by and chat with us today. I appreciate it. It's always good to chat with you, Frank. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And once again, we've been joined today by our guest, Michael Sonnenschein, CEO at Grayscale. Where can our listeners find you on the internet? Well, they can find me um, on Twitter at, at Sonnenschein, and my last name is my Twitter handle, and certainly encourage folks um, that are you know trying to follow along on our lawsuit on grayscale.com. Um, we have a whole section of our website focused on the lawsuit and certainly stay up to date with us on social media. Um, you used to have the whole um, calling on people to submit to the SEC different. We um, did. We actually broke a record. Um, it wasn't like we, it was like it was hundreds and it hundreds. Was over 11,000 comment letters submitted to the SEC is the most ever received. So there were some funny ones as well. Yes, yes, indeed. But folks can follow along, you know, follow the Grayscale handles. And um, it's one of the best ways to stay up to date with with progress at the firm and progress on our lawsuit. Grand. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service.